Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mary Kurisumasu. Mary Kurisumasu. Which is, of course, Japanese for Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. I've got to say, I found that quite hard to say. <laughs> I did. I can't remember what day of the week it is now. Um, I think it's the 27th of December. But that's the nature of this time of year, isn't it? It's the, it's the taint, it's the bass of Christmas, isn't it? Yes. No, no idea what day of the week it is. Too many tipples the night before. Exactly, port visions. Um, uh, exactly. So anyway, so uh, we're, doing, we're continuing with our book series. Yes. And, and it's your turn today, Al. So what, what, what have you got? Well, um, one of the, I think, I mean, Ernie Pyle yesterday, um, uh, one of the great writers about the Second World War from the American perspective, but today is George MacDonald Fraser's Quartered Safe Out Here, which is an absolute classic. And I'm one sure. One of our joint favourite books. One of our definitely. joint favourite books. Love this and book. I'm sure loads of people will have read this, but it's so well worth revisiting. He was, of course, famous as the author of Flashman, but this is the true story of his real life. George uses the language and attitudes of the time in this account of fighting in Burma. Just a heads up for you there. Um, And we have a small battle and then his reflections on it in this piece. Awoy, said Grandass and scrambled to his feet. Hutton was waving to us and we doubled towards him, crouching to keep under cover of the bank. The rest of the section, what was left of it, was there. Stanley with the Bren, Nixon, Wedge, the Duke and other men whom I didn't know. This presumably was nine section reconstituted. In less than a minute, we'd lost over a third of our original number. Then, Gale was leading the way to the left, along the bank which must have curved in towards the wood, for presently we were on the edge of the trees, taking up firing positions. I have to say that I am not sure how we got there. It is another of those hiatuses in memory where nothing much happened compared to the minute of frenzied violence which had followed our advance over the bank, or with what was to follow when we got into the wood. That day's battle for me was in two distinct parts, both of them vivid in my mind, but the connecting period is hazy. No doubt my mind was too full of what had happened to notice. I don't know how long a time elapsed in making that leftward movement, or how far we came from our original position on the bank, or what units of the company were on either side or behind. Fighting was going on elsewhere, a young corporal was winning the military medal clearing bunkers single-handed at about this time, and the interval may have been five minutes or thirty. Battle concentrates your attention on your own immediate front, and all I was aware of now was the fringe of trees in which we lay and the shadowy interior beyond. The snipers who had cut down Parker and Steele and Little and the others must be in the wood ahead and to the right. Stanley, lying next to me, touched me on the shoulder. Beyond him, Gale was on his feet, motioning the section forward and stepping ahead into the wood. Someone muttered something about bunkers. Stanley and I looked at each other. 
What he saw, God knows, but what I saw was his sweating face with the lips drawn back from the teeth. He adjusted the Bren sling. I waited until he was ready and we rose together and moved warily through the fringe of trees. There was undergrowth to our front, so I moved to the right with Stanley at my left elbow. It was dim after the glare of the open country, but through the trees immediately to our right I could make out a clearing. What I couldn't see was any sign of a bunker, but they must be in there somewhere, so I took a nervous glance to see that Stanley was still there and moved on slowly through the trees, safety catch off, finger just touching the trigger. There was no one to my right, and the section was now out of eyeshot to my left. For a moment Stanley and I might have been alone in the wood, but I knew bloody well we weren't. The one comfort was that its other inhabitants hadn't seen us yet. I nerved myself to go on walking, as softly as could be, scanning the clump of bushes ahead, the tree trunks on either side, and the clearing beyond. There wasn't a sound or a sign of a jap, and if firing was taking place farther off, I wasn't aware of it. A few more steps brought me to the bushes, and I knelt down, listening. The simple truth about war is that if you are on the attack, you can't do a damn thing until you find your enemy. And the only way to do that is to push on at whatever speed seems prudent until you see or hear him or he makes his presence known by letting fly at you, as witness our first advance over the bank. Now it was the same thing over again, the difference being that the left flanking movement had brought us inside his position and it was a question of who saw whom first and shot the straighter. Life closes in. I had no idea of what was happening elsewhere, no thought or use of the senses to spare for anything but what I saw as I knelt behind the bushes. Across the clearing, maybe ten yards away, was the bunker. It was a big one, three man at least, a mound of hard red earth about four feet high, and probably the same depth underneath. There was a wide firing slit at ground level, but what lay behind the slit was darkness. No movement, and nothing in the trees beyond the bunker. I looked at Stanley, a yard behind me, his brain at the ready, and then I was going like a bat out of hell for a palm on the other side of the clearing. There was a crack from the firing slit, but it was threepence or three yen wasted, and as I fetched up at the tree, its trunk between me and the bunker, Stanley ran forward, firing from the hip at the firing slit. Dust flew from the bunker as the Bren burst hit it, and then the bloody gun jammed. Stanley yelled and tugged at the magazine. I thought I saw movement inside the firing slit, and as Stanley jumped aside, I found myself running forward, firing into the slit. Three shots, I think, and I believe there was a return shot, and then I was diving down beside the bunker wall, about a yard to the side of the firing slit, fumbling for a grenade. I was facing back the way we'd come, and there were dark, bush-hatted figures running through the trees, and the wood was suddenly alive with small arms fire rifle and automatic. I yanked out the grenade pin, let the plunger go, forced myself to count 1,000, 2,000 and stretch sideways back flat on the bunker to whip the bomb through the firing slit. 1,000, 2,000, three, an ear-ringing crump. And I was snatching for a second grenade when Gail came running past me, gesturing, and I followed him round the bunker side. There was the bunker entrance, a low, narrow doorway, and Gail had a green 77 phosphorus grenade in his hand. He threw aside the black safety cap as he reached the doorway and was in the act of tossing the grenade inside when he suddenly stood straight up. His bush hat fell off and the side of his face was covered with blood. He fell full length, landing almost at my feet and someone grabbed him and pulled him away. I was at one side of the doorway and a small, sharp-faced sergeant, whom I didn't know, was at the other with a Tommy gun. Gale's phosphorus bomb hadn't exploded. They're dicey things with a tape which unwinds in flight and a ball and spring mechanism. 
but I had my second thirty-six grenade in one hand and my rifle in the other. The little sergeant also had a thirty-six. He nodded. We pulled our pins together. He waited three seconds that seemed like hours, and we tossed them in, flattening against the bunker. On the heels of the double explosion, he darted in, Thompson stuttering, two quick bursts, and he was out again. Three on em, he shouted, and his jaw dropped as he stared past me. I turned to see a Jap racing across in front of the bunker, a sword flourished above his head. He was going like Jesse Owens, screaming his head off right across my front. I just had sense enough to take a split second, traversing my aim with him before I fired. He gave a compulsive leap, and I felt that jolt of delight. I'd hit the bastard. And as he fell on all fours, the Highland officer with whom I'd played football dived on him from behind, slashing at his head with a cookery. Someone rounded the bunker, almost barging into me. It was Stanley shouting, Where? Where? In that kind of mad scramble, all that matters is seeing the enemy. He had a Bren magazine in one hand and was trying to change it for the one on the gun. I grabbed the barrel to steady it, burned myself, yelped, and seized the folded legs while he pushed the full magazine home. One of his putties was coming loose. A yard away, Gale was lying dead with two men bending over him. The whole wood was echoing with shots and explosions and yelling voices. Stanley ran past me, dropping the empty magazine, and as some Presbyterian devil made me pick it up, I noticed Gale's hat lying on the bunker doorway, and the little sergeant was shouting and running towards a second bunker. The 60 seconds I have just described being among the most eventful of my life, I've been able to relate almost step by step. After that, it was more disconnected. There were half a dozen men at the second bunker, feeding in grenades and firing through the slit. A Jap was shot and bayoneted in the entrance, and then we were past it, making for the far verge of the wood. Shots came from an earthwork to our left. A man had his bush hat shot from his head. Usually when a hat is hit, it stays in place, but this one spun off like a plate, landing several feet away. And a Jap appeared between the trees, and I shot him, and he fell against a trunk. And the little sergeant dropped his tommy gun and swore and picked it up again. The sequence of these things I can't be certain of because it all happened so quickly, or seemed to. I've spoken at the start of this paragraph of 60 seconds because I can't believe it took any longer, and probably the rush from the first bunker to the second and onto the wood's edge took about the same. But if that little sergeant were to appear and tell me that it took 20 minutes, I wouldn't contradict him. We were in that wood four hours. According to the regimental history, killed 136 Japanese and lost seven dead and 43 wounded ourselves in the whole operation. But I wasn't conscious of time, only of the highlights of action. The fight at the first bunker is crystal clear, but the rest is a series of unrelated incidents. It was a hectic, murderous confusion. The whole section was in the wood, but Stanley is the only one I remember. Indeed, Gale is the only other one I can positively identify from the entire platoon. The little sergeant was there most of the time. When we were lying on the edge of the wood, covering the open ground beyond, I heard him ask for a field dressing, but which platoon he belonged to I never knew. When we opened fire at Japs moving onto the open ground, the men on either side of me were strangers. One of them kept seeing Japs in the trees beyond the open space and blazed away, cursing. But I believe it was wishful thinking. Then we were withdrawing. Behind us, the company were leaving the wood by the way we'd come in. And when we on the far side were ordered to fall back, we went quite slowly, with the little sergeant shouting hoarsely to take our time. He knew his business, that one, for as we retreated past the cleared bunkers to the front of the wood, he kept up an incessant patter of orders and encouragement. I have an idea he's a Welshman, keeping us in a rough line, well spaced out, firing as we went, for Japs were filtering into the trees we had just left. He was next to me, firing short bursts. 
I had a shot at one running figure among the trees and he went down, but I think it was a dive for cover. There was a film called Honky Tonk in which Clark Gable had to back out of a saloon, covering the occupants with his gun and remarking, this reminds me of the days when we used to do all our walking backwards. The words came back to me in the temple wood, as such things will, and at some point the man on my left dropped to his knees shouting, look what I've got! I didn't identify the object, but what he did get a second later was a bullet in the leg from an unseen Jap, and then he rolled over shouting, they got me! The dirty rats, they got me! It wasn't a bad wound, a furrow just above the knee, and he hobbled out of the wood under his own steam, blaspheming painfully. That was the battle in the Temple Wood, an insignificant moment in the war. Its importance is personal. It was typical of the kind of action that was going on all round Mike Teeler, and if figures mean anything, we won it, although I am still puzzled about its conclusion. Japs were re-entering the wood as we left it, but they cannot have reoccupied it, for the battalion history's tally of Japanese killed is exact, not an estimate, and must have been made on the ground afterwards with ourselves in possession. So I conclude that the withdrawal in which I took part was not the end of the action, as I thought at the time. This is the trouble with eyewitness. It only sees part of the whole and is incomplete. If mine is patchy, I can only excuse it on the ground that I'd never been in a fight to the death before with the enemy at close quarters, which is, to say the least, confusing. I have tried to describe in plain terms what I saw and can be sure of. What I thought at the time is less clear, but some strong impressions remain. At the moment of fixing bayonets, I had that hollow feeling which most writers locate in the stomach, but in my case manifests itself in the throat. After we were fired on, I didn't notice it. To say I was shocked at seeing Parker and Steele hit is correct in the sense that one is shocked by running into a brick wall. Astonishment and fascination came into it too. You read of such things. Now you see the reality and think, so that's what it looks like. The thought of being hit myself occurred only in the moment before I started crawling towards the Bren, to be submerged in relief when Stanley took possession. Going into the wood, I was scared stiff but not witless. Given Aladdin's lamp, I would have been in Bermuda. No, that's not true. If it were, I'd have kept out of the army in the first place. Being there with a choice made, you go ahead. And if anyone says you could always change your mind and run away, he's wrong. You can't. It sounds pompous to say it's a matter of honour, but that's what it comes down to, and Falstaff knew it. He was quite right, though, that honour hath no skill in surgery, which is why you are perfectly entitled to be scared. There is the consolation that once the shooting starts, the higher thought takes a back seat. Putting a grenade into a bunker had the satisfaction of doing grievous bodily harm to an enemy for whom I had felt real hatred, and still do. Seeing Gale killed shocked me as our first casualties had done, and I think enraged me. I wanted a Jap then, mostly for my own animal pride, no doubt, but seeing Gale go down sparked something which I felt in the instant when I hung on my aim at that Jap with the sword, because I wanted to be sure. The joy of hitting him was the strongest emotion I felt that day. I notice I've mentioned it twice. Perhaps I'm too self-analytical, but I'm trying to be honest. It's hard to say where fear and excitement meet, or which predominates. The best way I can sum up my emotions in that word is to say that a continuous nervous excitement was shot through with occasional flashes of rage, terror, elation, relief and amazement. So far as I have seen, most men are like that, by and large, although there are exceptions. A few really enjoy it. 
and I've seen them, and I won't say they're deranged, because even the most balanced man has moments of satisfaction in battle which are indistinguishable from enjoyment, short-lived though they may be. Some are blessed with the quick reflexes which, combined with experience, enable them to keep cool like the little sergeant. Others seem to be on a high, like the man who cried, Look what I've got! I was glad to come out of it, but even then I felt what I feel now, and what every old soldier feels, a gratitude for having been there, and an abiding admiration amounting to awe for the sheer ability of my comrades. Nowadays, the highest praise a soldier can get is the word professional. 14th Army weren't professionals. They were experts. The aftermath was as interesting as the battle. Fiction and the cinema have led us to expect certain reactions from men in war, and the conventions of both demand displays of emotion, or a restraint which is itself highly emotional. I don't know what Nine Section felt, but whatever it was didn't show. They expressed no grief or anger or obvious relief or indeed any emotion at all. They betrayed no symptoms of shock or disturbance, nor were they nervous or short-tempered. If they were quieter than usual that evening, well, they were dog-tired. Discussion of the day's events was limited to a brief reference to Gale's death and to the prospects of the wounded. Steele had been flown out on a flying taxi, one of the tiny, fragile monoplanes to which stretchers were strapped. It was thought his wound was serious. Parker was said to be in dock on Mike Teeler, and a few weeks later there were to be ironic congratulations when he returned to the section with a romantic star-shaped scar high on his chest. Penicillin was a new marvel then. Not a word was said about Titch Little, but a most remarkable thing happened, and I saw it repeated later in the campaign, which I've never heard of elsewhere in fact or fiction although I suspect it is as old as war. Titch's military effects and equipment, not of course his private possessions or any of his clothing, were placed on a ground sheet, and it was understood that anyone in the section could take what he wished. Grandass took one of his mess tins, Forster his hussive, making sure it contained only army issue and nothing personal. Nixon, after long deliberation, took his rifle, an old Lee Enfield shod in very pale wood, which surprised me, for it seemed it might make its bearer uncomfortably conspicuous. I took his piala, which was of superior enamel, unlike the usual chipped mugs. Each article was substituted on the ground sheet with our own possessions, my old piala, Forster's hussif and so on, and it was bundled up for delivery to the quartermaster. I think everyone from the original section took something. It was done without formality, and at first I was rather shocked, supposing that it was a coldly practical, almost ghoulish proceeding, people exchanging an inferior article for a better one, nothing more, and indeed, that was the pretext. Nick worked the bolt, squinted along the sights, hefted the rifle, and even looked in its butt trap before nodding approval. Grandass tossed his old mess tin onto the ground sheet with a mutter about the booger's handle being loose. But of course, it had another purpose. Without a word said, everyone was taking a memento of Titch. An outsider might have thought, mistakenly, that the section was unmoved by the deaths of Gale and Little. There was no outward show of sorrow, no reminiscences or eulogies, no Hollywood heart-searchings or phony philosophy. Forster asked, We is on first stug? Grant said, Not me any roads, as a boot knackered, and rolled up in his blanket. Nick cleaned Titch's rifle. I washed and dried his piala. The new section commander, that young corporal who earlier in the day had earned the military medal, told off the stag roster we went to sleep and that was that it was not callousness or indifference or lack of feeling for two comrades who had been alive that morning and were now names for the war memorial 
It was just that there was nothing to be said. It was part of war. Men died. More would die. That was past, and what mattered now was the business in hand. Those who lived would get on with it. Whatever sorrow was felt, there was no point in talking or brooding about it, much less in making, for form's sake, a parade of it. Better and healthier to forget it and to look to tomorrow. The celebrated British stiff upper lip, the resolve to conceal emotion, which is not only embarrassing and useless, but harmful, is just plain common sense. Well, I was wondering how you were going to do all the accents. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> I've got a very, very good friend from that part of the world, and he's going to kill me. <laughs> I, I, I'm so with you on this. I just think it's one of the, one of the most brilliantly yeah. written, evocative, funny, and also deeply moving yeah. memoirs that's ever it's been written about the war. It's, brilliant... it's, it's completely brilliant on every single level yeah. and, and it was an absolute shoe in it there's one book I would say no two books who were absolutely guaranteed were going to be in this obviously the spike was one yeah this was the other yeah anyway oh, Merry Christmas everyone we hope you yes. enjoyed that cheerio I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.